Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. I hope that what I'm doing is telling the best story. And I think if it doesn't win, then something that is really not good wins instead. And that's, I'm not comfortable with that as an alternative outcome. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. What you just heard was an audio excerpt from The Rise of Jordan Peterson a Canadian film directed by Patricia Marcocha and produced by her husband, Maziar Gaderi, of Toronto-based Holding Space Films. The movie was released in late 2018, but continues to find new audiences, including a well-attended screening I attended last week in Midtown Toronto and a forthcoming festival appearance in Western Canada next month. The Rise of Jordan Peterson is an honest portrait of a campus intellectual who's become an international sensation and is based on months of intimate access provided to the husband and wife filmmakers. But it's not a fawning portrait, and it includes the voices of critics, as well as starring roles for Peterson's family members. That includes Peterson's wife Tammy, who is seen constantly trying to help her husband manage the controversies and demands that began when the debate over pronoun usage vaulted Peterson to international celebrity in 2016. Earlier this week, I visited the Holding Space offices to interview the couple, Patricia and Maz, as they're known to friends, about what it was like to shadow Canada's most famous public intellectual, and about how their film's been received by Peterson's friends and foes. Here are excerpts from our conversation. In the movie, you don't have time to get into every aspect of Jordan Peterson's life, and I noticed that you weren't going to systematically explain all of his scholarship. Was that a decision you made? There was uh, so much to this story and certainly a lot of ideas to get into. We had a lot of different cuts of the film and in some of those cuts we went into certain ideas more deeply than probably what the final cut ended up being. But in the end, we thought about what do we have that's different from what's already out there? Like the expansion of his ideas is on his YouTube channel and in so many articles, and it's uh, criticized by a lot of people and engaged in so many podcast conversations. We thought what we have is really this more human story. You're at the dining room table in the morning, in the evening with Jordan Peterson, with his wife. There's a scene with his daughter, his mother. Jordan Peterson's father, you go out to Alberta to reconnect with some of his roots. So it is a very personal story. Did you find it sometimes frustrating that a lot of the action takes place at a kitchen table or often with Jordan Peterson in front of his computer? Was it difficult to dramatize scenes that are fairly pedestrian? In the early days of making this film, certainly before Jordan blew up, when I was pitching the film to people, the question people always had in mind was, oh, so you're making a film about a professor? Like, that sounds dry. Like, what are we actually going to see on camera? So it's definitely something I gave a lot of consideration to. But I, I'm really proud of the product we ended up making because I think it ended up having that depth and we feel like we didn't have to compromise on accuracy in terms of dramatizing things. It was still engaging. One person who I spoke to, someone I have a lot of respect for, said she went through a period of depression a couple of years ago and she started watching Jordan Peterson videos and she became addicted 
And after like two weeks of doing nothing but watching Jordan Peterson, she just said, oh my God, I'm in a cult. And she just closed her computer and she still likes Jordan Peterson, but she just stopped watching the video. How difficult was it to make this film, which tries to get people into the head of Jordan Peterson, but you can't show viewers like, oh, here's what it's like to watch seven hours of Jordan Peterson footage because you have an hour and a half to show them a documentary. So was it a limitation? Uh, To a degree, yes. I mean, there are some fans who will watch the film and they'll feel like, well, you know, where was Jordan's debate with Sam Harris? And it's like, well, you know, they had four debates. Each one is probably two and a half hours. And, you know, they still didn't get to the root of things. So what am I going to do in an hour and a half film to even scratch the surface of that? We just did our best to show scenes that captured some of that that energy of the ways that he was affecting people. So there's a scene where Jordan's walking with his friend and colleague, Will Cunningham, who appears in the film, and they're walking down the street, and then you see someone just come up to them. By the way, I love Will. He's like the surprise hit of the movie. He's just this sort of happy-go-lucky University of Toronto prof. Who's, yeah, Jordan Peterson's just this guy, you know? He's he's a great... You should do a doc on him one day. Tell him that. That was a good impression, too. It sounded just like Will. <laughs> anyway, sorry, I interrupted you. Uh, so you have this guy that walks up to uh, Jordan and Will while they're walking down the street, and he's like, hey, Jordan, I just, I love your videos. It's really helping me deal with issues of anxiety and depression. And it's such a common thing that you hear. I remember that guy. And I remember he had long hair. And I think he had like a nose ring. Like he just looked like this countercultural stereotype. And when I saw him, my stereotypes activated. And I was like, oh, God, here we go. This guy's going to attack Jordan Peterson. That, that's funny. Okay, so we were we were walking down the street in the annex where Jordan lives. For listeners in other countries or other parts of Canada, the annex is like the academic lefty neighborhood in western downtown Toronto. So we were filming Jordan walking down the street with Will, and I was across the street up ahead to to get the next angle. Then I see this kid, yeah, long hair, bandana, leather jacket, uh, lip, and I think nose ring. And uh, he kind of was looking at Jordan with his buddy and kind of pointing at Jordan. I'm like, this guy's Antifa. I just thought the worst immediately, right? We're bigots, let's face it. A hundred percent. And so I, so then I said to Jordan, I'm like, Jordan, okay, walk past your house. Don't go in because see this guy over there, he might be, you know. And then Jordan said, oh, uh, don't worry about it. We'll just proceed as usual. He said something like that. And we went on. And then next thing you know, literally what the scene in the film is him coming up to greet Jordan and to thank him and to shake his hand. And he was very nervous. And he was, and then when I got his email afterwards to sign the release, he was very grateful. And he turned it out to be a super fan. So it's like, it just proves how much of Peterson's fans and the people that have been affected by his work, they can look like anybody. We did about 13 cities in the fall, showing the film to different places. And a lot of the people that came out were, of course, Peterson fans. Because it was a tour that I kind of built on my own. We didn't get any sort of mainstream chain to back us. It was just independent one-offs that I kind of networked through social media. And uh, yeah, the people that would come out, I mean, there's diversity. Many of the people who I saw interviewed, they weren't white guys. They were people who looked like Canada. And I saw women and I saw men, mostly men. But it certainly wasn't the stereotype of like the angry incel white guy in his basement. It was, it was all sorts of people. Is this something you knew going in that Jordan Peterson's fan base was more diverse than some people think? I think the, uh, one of the first events with Jordan was the thing at McMaster. And McMaster, just, it's a university in Hamilton about an hour outside Toronto. Yeah, and this was, this was the scene in the film that was the crazy protest, the most heated one, the most confrontational 
where the protesters basically swarmed and uh, set up shop at the back of the lecture hall because it was not ticketed. And uh, the student group that hosted Jordan, they were mostly like West Asian uh, Pakistani guys, uh, Canadian Pakistani guys. So, so we, we knew of, of that going into it because people were curious. And I mean, his work is deep enough to reach people at that level. So it wasn't a huge surprise. This project, as I understand it, originated long before the controversy about pronouns. You originally wanted to do a documentary about Jordan Peterson's friendship with an indigenous person who lives in the western part of Canada. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. And and actually, even before that became the focus of the doc, really why I approached Jordan, so this was in uh, spring 2015, I was interested in his ideas. I had known about his book, Maps of Meaning, for probably 10 years by then, um, back when I was a psychology undergrad student. Can you give me the thumbnail version of what Maps of Meaning argues? Maps of Meaning is a very dense book. It goes into archetypes and mythology and different fields within psychology, evolutionary psychology, kind of tying it all together. The things that really drew me in the book were the fact that he talks about the divine individual. And for me, when I was in my early 20s, one of the things that drew me to his work, like a lot of people today, was I was trying to find meaning. I was trying to find purpose. I had my existential quandaries about the world. And so the book was kind of the perfect thing to land on when you're in that space. And in his introduction to that book, he talks about what motivated him to write it. And it was really trying to understand this problem of evil. What motivates people to participate in mass genocides? That was really kind of what was driving him to get to the root of of the shadow and darkness. He's very influenced by Jungian psychology, by Nietzsche. And so uh, I was really interested in those things as well. And I, I continued to follow his work. I saw some of his programs on TVO. Public television service here in Ontario. Right. And so he appeared there a lot. And so in 2015, I finally approached him about this idea of making a film. It was at the back of my mind for years by that point. And I was interested in his ideas and and his motivation for those ideas. But then as I got to know what was happening in his life, I learned about his friendship with Charles Joseph. Charles Joseph is an indigenous carver who lives on the west coast of Canada, the northern part of Vancouver Island. He's part of the Kwakwakawak Nation. And he and Jordan met about 15 years ago uh, on Vancouver Island at a craft fair. Charles, was he was selling his art there. Uh, he had large carvings of masks uh, and all sorts of things, ranging from, you know, necklaces and small carvings, but also a lot of larger ones. And when Jordan saw his artwork, he was just really astounded by it. And he said, well, this isn't craft. This is really artwork. And they started talking about one of the myths in Charles' culture, which is Jordan at the time was researching flood myths in different cultures. So they started talking about that and it it just uh, developed into this friendship. They kept in touch. Jordan would order artwork from Charles a lot. And Jordan is really fascinated by art. And so they developed this friendship. And what was happening at the time when I uh, started to get to know Jordan was he was adding this third floor to his home and it was influenced by an indigenous longhouse. Sidebar, much of your film unfolds in Jordan's house, which is like a museum of all sorts mm-hmm. of artwork. Uh, and and the majority of the Indigenous artwork in Jordan's home was done by Charles. And so on this third floor, uh, there were totem poles being done, and it was all for this um, the space he was building in his home. And I thought, okay, well, that's really interesting. And there's a kind of natural arc to this. And I, 
I was really interested in the ways in which Jordan lives out these ideas he talks about, the way he lives them out in his life. So that's another reason why I, I focused on this kind of human story. And then that became the focus of the film. I was following his friendship uh, with Charles and Charles's family as part of the protocols of kind of what their their families were doing together. Charles's family was adopting Jordan into their family. According to the protocols of their community, not in any legal sense. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So it's a, a cultural ceremony. Uh, and so we went and filmed that potlatch ceremony that was um, probably spring 2016. Um, and ironically, there was a, another, a second part of it that took place in Jordan's home when they were blessing the space once it was done. And this is when Jordan received a name in Kwakwala, which is Charles's language. This happened in October 2016. And this was right when the controversy was unfolding. So it was very strange to, on the one hand, read all these articles about Jordan as a bigot and a transphobe, and then to be in his home at this blessing ceremony where one of you know Charles's chiefs uh, is giving Jordan a name which translates to knowledge seeker, truth seeker. It was all very strange. I was a little bit afraid that I would come to see your movie and you guys would turn out to be these like glassy-eyed Jordan Peterson groupies and it would be this hagiography of Peterson. But it's not like that at all. And in fact, you interview some pretty strong Jordan Peterson critics. In the Q&A after the film showing I saw, I think you indicated that Peterson had, had no say on the editorial content of the film. But he presumably knew some of the critics you were interviewing. Did he try and discourage you from talking to any particular person? Jordan was pretty open about that. He was pretty hands-off. So that kind of speaks to his respect for art and artists and art making. So that was really refreshing. You know, it, it was never an annoying... Um, sometimes if you're doing a documentary and you have a subject who's uh, getting in your way a little bit and doesn't let you do your thing, and that comes down to trust. So thankfully, uh, uh, it, it was really smooth with Jordan. Um, the most stressful time was when we interviewed Bernie Sheff. He is, as I understand it, a retired University of Toronto psychology professor, formerly a mentor and a good friend to Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson stayed in his house for a few months, and they were almost like family. And then, I guess it was just a couple of years ago, out of kind of out of nowhere, Sheff wrote this long detailed Jacques piece against Peterson. Uh, Chef denies that it's connected to the fact that he himself has a trans-identified child. It sounds like Peterson interpreted that as an act of betrayal. Yeah, so, so yeah, Bernie was the guy that hired Jordan at UFT. Good friends. Uh, Jordan, had st Jordan and his whole family stayed with Bernie uh, in his place for about five months when uh, their house was being renovated. Yeah, so then, yeah, as you say, it was, a, it was a Toronto Star article. More times that or not, people that are more on the progressive side, when we mention this film, they mention that article. So then we felt compelled, we have to interview Bernie. What's really actually kind of sad about this is that Bernie passed away last year. The, it's really kind of poetic, the, the way the film is cut with that part, because it's Jordan, so Bernie says his case, Jordan responds. The only place ever outside of two tweets where Jordan responded to Bernie. Jordan responds, then Bernie. So they have, they, they have this conversation that they never had and they never will be able to have through the editing of the film. So that was a bit stressful. And I remember watching when we showed the film to Jordan, 
uh, and Tammy and his mom. It, it wasn't an ideal situation. It was uh, in the summertime when Tammy was at the hospital at Toronto General and she was, and we were all there bedside. She was going through her cancer treatment. It was really crazy time, uh, but we had no choice. We just picture locked, which means editing is done. Then you're, then you're allowed to show the film to the people that are in it after it's done. So that was our time to show the film to him because he was in town. And it was stressful because, you know, we've seen the film so many times. We would like to watch people watch the film. So we were watching Jordan watch it. And when it came to the Bernie part, you know, I could tell he was visibly and naturally very anxious, shed a tear. Yeah, so it was this very emotional segment in the film. Jordan Peterson is not a religious figure, per se. Yet the people you see coming up to him treat him almost the way you would treat a guru or these people who go up on stage with televangelists. Were you struck by that? Because it happens, from what I can tell, just completely spontaneously during the film. You're, you're with Peterson and these people come and you can tell that they were recovering from some kind of emotional crisis and, and they tell Jordan that you really helped me through it. Is that something you expected? That wasn't a surprise to me at all, actually, because before Jordan became famous and any of this controversy erupted before he came onto the public stage, his work already had that effect on people. So one of the reasons why I approached him was because I knew he was one of these life-changing professors on the University of Toronto campus. If you were to go to his classes, you would see a lineup of students after class just all waiting to ask him a question. And I could understand it, frankly, because of, you know, myself having gotten into his work when I was in my early 20s in my existential phase. I could understand where a lot of these people were coming from. And I saw the phenomenon happening. So it already existed prior to this, but it was just at a fraction of the scale because it was, you know, before he became this incredibly famous figure around the world. So not to pry too much into your own background, but... Maz is Iranian, but uh, my background is Italian, but I was born in Toronto. Can you tell me a little bit about your own spiritual or religious background, like how you came to be interested in Peterson, this existential crisis that you've discussed? So I was raised in a in a pretty religious Roman Catholic Italian family. You know, to this day, I think my parents came over last Sunday and asked us if we went to church. You know, they hope one day we'll go back. <laughs> you know, and, you know, Maz never actually was Christian, so it doesn't even make sense to ask him. But anyhow, so I was raised in that environment. And when I was pretty young, I... I was um, I was religious, and I was um, I was into it. But I I grew out of that, you know, probably late elementary school or early high school, and uh, I think what I went through was a common phase that a lot of people go through. I just felt that uh, the religion didn't really speak to me, um, both on a spiritual level and in terms of uh, you know there were ideas that didn't make sense to me. I guess I always felt like. Even though I walked away from that, there was sort of that existential gap. And I do think that uh, in Jordan's work, he talks about ideas on a religious level. So it's at least a way of uh, engaging with those ideas, even though it isn't a religion, although for some people it, it is. Jordan Peterson is plainly interested in what I would describe as the whole in society that is left when religion is no longer there. And he doesn't preach any particular religious creed, but he does preach the idea that we need some kind of spiritual sustenance. Your film plays that up a little bit. It's called The Rise of Jordan Peterson, and the word rise, of course, has Christian religious significance. Uh, there's also one point in the film, you linger on it, where Jordan's opening his mail, and there's this sort of stained glass-themed image that 
presents Jordan Peterson as a medieval religious prophet. There are some people who have accused Jordan Peterson of being a kind of cult leader. I've studied cults a little bit, and I don't think he's a cult leader because he lacks many of the characteristics of cult leaders. He does not try to monopolize the beliefs of his followers. You know, he doesn't surround himself with groupies, just the opposite. He seems to live a very conventional bourgeois family existence. Yet at the same time, he said things in the film that are like, huh, that's weird, bordering on creepy. Like there was one point, I think you talked to his parents, and they mentioned that when he was a young child, he was watching the funeral of Bobby Kennedy. And he said, this is, I think, according to his parents' report, when I die, I want a funeral like that. And I remember I was like, that's super weird. What did you think when you heard that? So there's uh, there's different levels to this. So one of the things I like about that scene is it's an example of one of the ways in which this film is kind of like a, a Rorschach test. There's these very different interpretations we get. And with that scene, because we, we had a lot of test screenings with people coming from a very diverse range of perspectives here in our living room as we were testing out different rough cuts of the film that range from fans to people who really dislike Jordan uh, to people who knew nothing about him before coming in. So anyhow, with that scene, you'll get people who think, wow, it's amazing that Jordan already knew that about himself, that he was going to be this savior uh, at five years old. We've had people say that to us. And then you have people that look at that scene and they're like, wow, what a megalomaniac Jordan is. And my reaction was somewhere in between. I think that another layer to that, myself knowing how Jordan thinks... One of the things that he encourages people to do is to sort of observe themselves and observe the thoughts that they have. And I think a lot of us have all kinds of strange thoughts, and it takes courage to actually be able to say publicly what some of those thoughts are. And so when you're five years old, you think all all sorts of crazy things as well. And I think, you know, Jordan was, it it was more like an observation of, oh, isn't this interesting? This is what, this is what came up for me when I was five. And oh, why did I think that? It goes along with his fixation, which as I understand it, he's had from an early age of eradicating the problem of evil in the world. Because as he explained when people asked, well, why are you so obsessed with war? And you have images of these these horrible historical figures, among other artistic representations in his house. And and he said quite bluntly, he said, since I was a kid, I was fascinated with eradicating evil. It's a noble impulse. It's also a religious impulse. And it's connected with this stereotype some people have of him, that he is this kind of prophet figure or or false prophet figure. And I'm thinking in particular of a a speaking event I did with him. I was like an opening act in Montreal. And I remember I'd never seen his videos and I was watching him speak. And I was like, you know, what's the big deal with this guy? Because the first few minutes, he seemed to be making a lot of sense and it was interesting, but I didn't see why he'd become such a hit. And then after like 10 minutes, it sort of hit me. It's like, okay, I get why this person is so popular. Because he does have this quality that that prophets have, which is that he's not there burbling away trying to convince you of something. He presents his ideas in a way that it's almost this emotional labor he has to do to bring these ideas out, that it's painful, but he's doing it as a public service. And so the audience is there pulling the ideas out of him as opposed to him being a salesman and pushing them on people. And there's the sense that he's suffering. He confesses in the film that he, he cries easily. He sort of mixes emotionalism, I think it's sincere emotionalism, but it's still emotionalism, in with his spread of ideas. And that contributes to the idea that this guy is a quasi-religious figure. Did you sense that 
in your interactions with him on just a casual interpersonal level? When I started sensing that, it weirded me out. So you did sense something like that? Oh, yeah. Uh, so my background, I was born in Iran. We came to Canada as refugees during the Iran-Iraq war. I come from a very, very secular family. Religion has been never something that was put on us, forced on us to do by our parents, and partly because of what happened with our country. It went way to the right, way to the right. The theocratic, right? Yeah, so it was completely totalitarian, using our religious dogma as an excuse for anything. And then when you're having conversations with people that are in bed with that sort of thinking, there's, there's really no conversation because they have this belief and to unravel that belief unravels their, their everything about them, their identity, their, their self-confidence, the path they chose, how much they love their grandfather, their mother, their father. It's this whole package. So it's so exhausting to have these conversations. And I went to Iran for, I was born there, but I went for the first time as an adult in 2010. I was 27. And I'm sitting there at, at a mehmuni at a dinner party, and I'm talking with different cousins and getting to know extended family, which I never had an experience with. And I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm there with a cousin who's in Hezbollah, you know, self-stated. And uh, for him, for, for in, in an Iranian context, in that sense, that would be something equated to kind of like, I don't know, maybe something like Texas A&M, the military corps. Yeah, so, th so, th so this guy is a clerk for them, or, you know, I'm sitting there and uh, having this debate with him about that and we, you get nowhere basically so I always had this distaste for religion fast forward you know to three years ago uh, Jordan's doing a talk at UFT with the Orthodox Christian study or whatever so Jordan was invited to speak and then uh, there's these two other oh Jonathan Pajot was there which I'm a big fan of actually Jonathan Pajot is a Montreal based a icon carver is also a YouTuber who appeared in the film He's an Orthodox Christian who looks at symbology and breaks down pop culture with it. So a really cool guy. Um, he was my favorite part of the uh, talk. But there's two other guys, you know, uh, going off about this and that that I really can't connect with. We're in robes. And then the day after, Jordan asked me, well, what would you think of the event? I just said to him, when I see a guy in a robe, I automatically feel distrust, you know. Fast forward, there we are filming Jordan's Bible lectures. So those were the most, one of the most, if not the most successful, famous things he's done. And just to be clear, he's not preaching the literal truth of the Bible. 100%. He's, yeah. he's analyzing yeah. the Bible. Yeah. So in these, in these Bible lectures, this, the psychological significance of the Bible at UFT, um, first, I just went as part of the research and to film them for the doc. Then I caught myself behind the camera really starting to listen really starting to see the way he's talking about it, where, because I, as an artistic person, I love mythology, symbology, kind of like the meta-narrative of a simple story. Uh, and he was breaking it down at that level. And then he got me kind of interested. I'm like, oh, okay, you, you got my ear now. So now when I hear, if I'm in a situation where I'm hearing like a biblical story, when in my mid-20s, I would be like, I am not going to pay attention to that. I'm much more open to it and being able to take what I want out of that, like we all would, like he does. And then here's what's really ironic. So Jordan Peterson, a guy from Fairview, Alberta, right, much older than me, completely different background. Uh, I come from an immigrant urban liberal background. 
It's because of him, or partly because of him, and a bit of Nietzsche, and I guess of Jung, but mainly Jordan, because he's the one I personally know, he helped to kind of inspire me to look into my own Persian mythology, theology, philosophy, Zoroastrianism. Looking at these old stories and how it embeds with our thinking. Like you couldn't have the Shahnameh, which is a famous uh, book of poetry, a big book of folklore of uh, Persian antiquity. You couldn't have that without Manichaeanism. And you couldn't have Manichaeanism. Like good versus evil. Yeah. And Jordan's a lot like that. So there's this editor in Ariel magazine. There's also Andrew Sweeney out of Montreal who talks about that. It's like Jordan, Jordan is Zoroastrian. He just doesn't know it. For people that don't know, Zoroastrianism was the first monotheistic religion. Predated Abrahamic faith. 100%. Like this was a long time ago. Um, Zarathustra, Zoroaster. Zoroastrianism was the pre-Islamic first monotheistic religion in a sea of polytheistic pagan religions. And created the first enduring flood myth, if I, if I know my... Zoroastrian. <laughs> Flood myths, uh, the idea of the Messiah, um, uh, the, the three wise men were Magi. Magi is a Zoroastrian priest. That's where we get the word magic from. It was the first monotheistic religion. And as soon as you have a monotheistic way of thinking, you inherently have a good and evil kind of thing. You have, you have light and darkness. One of my theories when I've studied cults and religions is that people don't need a god, but they do need demons. And it strikes me that a lot of the not necessarily the people you interviewed in the film, who, who are critics of Jordan Peterson and seem quite thoughtful. Some of the people who showed up at these events, but essentially treating him as a sort of antichrist. When you saw this demonization of Peterson, did you think that you were glimpsing a kind of religious Manichaean reaction, a, a desire to cast him as a font of evil? I did, and also what helps to make that even more real than ever is social media, like the algorithms. Either you, you're outraged by something or you're complicit in something. You screen grab some of his most controversial and in some cases, I think, ill-tempered tweets. And you can see that he lost his temper. Certainly Jordan is not immune to it. <laughs> and and I think it's such a natural human impulse to pick your side and it's grounding, but it, and it can be anxiety provoking when you're doing the opposite because you're saying, well, there's some truth happening here and there's some truth happening here. And so it makes it this kind of roller coaster ride. And I tried to mimic that in the way the film was presented. We've reached the midpoint in this Quillette podcast, which we'll resume very shortly. But first, a short message from our commercial supporters at BetterHelp an online counseling service that helps people become happier and more productive. By logging on at BetterHelp, you can connect with your professional licensed counselor in a safe and private online environment according to your own pace and schedule, using secure video or phone sessions, as well as online chat and text. Some of the specialties of BetterHelp counselors include depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationship problems, sleep trouble, and trauma. BetterHelp uses a network of 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 U.S. states. And you can switch therapists at no charge to make sure you find the right fit. Financial aid is available for those who qualify. And of course, anything you share with the professionals at BetterHelp is strictly confidential. Quillette podcast listeners get 10% off their first month service by using the discount code Quillette. If you'd like to know more, please go to betterhelp.com Quillette. That's betterhelp.com slash Quillette. And now, back to our podcast. 
There's one scene where Jordan Peterson is at the dinner, dinner table. His wife has prepared dinner. Jordan's distracted by the computer. And his wife sort of gently, at one point, I think she actually reaches out and closes the computer for him. To which Peterson acquiesces because he knows that he should shut the computer and seems symbolic of the what I saw as a fairly healthy relationship between the two with, with her drawing him back into his human world of, of personal connections in case he gets too much wrapped up in online debates. One aspect of Jordan Peterson is that he is, he's a self-help book author, 12 Rules for Life, which in some respects is like a conventional self-help airport swivel rack book. And yet you can see that in his day-to-day life, like all of us, he has difficulty abiding by the 12 Rules of Life. Doctor, cure thyself. Is he upfront about the fact that he has as much difficulty as any of us in rejecting some of these temptations in life? I would say so. In fact, he says that one of the reasons why he uh, delves into all of this stuff is because he recognizes, you know, the darkness in himself. And I think that's why a lot of people find what he, what he's doing appealing when it comes to like working on your own shadow and that sort of thing. Yet at the same time, like I think he tried to react as quickly as he could to all of the tumultuous changes happening in his life over these last three years or four to a degree, it definitely has sucked him in. And it, it speaks to the fact that he he's spending time out of the public eye now. You know, the, the f- way the film ends with Jordan trying to grapple with who is he now uh, with all of these changes, I think it speaks to, to a degree where he is now. And his wife says, I want Jordan back. I've lost him to the world. Although the fact that there, you see a lot of very touching domestic scenes suggests that that's not quite the case, that there's still a strong connection between the two. But he's obviously somebody who's he's being drawn in different directions. And uh, it's one of the reasons maybe he seems so stressed. Thinking about this a little bit more and the fact that Jordan had to, you know, go into rehab. I don't know if you know about that stuff. And that was for painkiller medication? Anti-anxiety medication that... The first 20 minutes of the film, there's a lot of like close-up scenes of him being jittery and agitated. It's obviously something you might have noticed during filmmaking. Otherwise, you wouldn't have shot it that way, right? Mm -hmm. I I think I've had this thought where Jordan's kind of... I think that he's kind of born in the wrong time. I think that if he was a contemporary of like Nietzsche before internet time, I think that I think that that would have been that would have been closer to match his. But all prophets or near prophets are like that because there's always a sort of romantic perfectionist yearning. So there's that Manichaean quality to him, good and evil. And again, I, I think it. I think internet culture thrives on that, and Twitter thrives on that. The soundtrack to your movie, I want to talk about that, because I'm a sucker for soundtracks. Uh, like a lot of people, I, I, I let the soundtrack tell me how I should feel. Your soundtrack, there's, it's like a lot of minor key, very sad... If you heard the soundtrack without watching the movie, you'd think it was a super sad movie. Even though I thought the actual content of the film was, on balance, emotionally neutral, good news and bad news. Tell me about how you decided to use that kind of very slow, languorous, sad soundtrack. I wouldn't say that I was necessarily going for uh, a lot of, I guess, sadness in the undertones. But in certain scenes, it's there more. Like one that comes to mind is the scene where Jordan recites the letter to his father. What we see visually is we're going through Jordan's home and seeing a lot of the Soviet era paintings depicting war and things like that. And the letter that Jordan recites, he wrote that in, what was it, in the 80s. 
And this letter is found in his book, Maps of Meaning. And, and it speaks to when Jordan was in earlier stages of feeling like he was landing upon a really important discovery. So in a scene like that, for example, yeah, there's definitely these kind of deep and somber undertones. You know, Jordan surrounds himself in his home with uh, these Soviet era paintings because he wants to remember how bad things can get. It, it's something that's close to the surface for him, whereas for most people, that's like, oh, well, that's, that's something of the past. But this is what sometimes prophets do, right? They, they remind themselves of the burden that they must bear. But at the same time, there's this sense of sadness, knowing that the battle against these forces of evil can never truly be won. So there is a sort of despairing quality. What's funny is that we've had a lot of interviews, a lot of podcasts throughout the tour. And I guess because you studied, you studied cults, you're asking very specific things. It's very interesting. But, and I want to I be clear that I don't regard Jordan Peterson as a cult leader, but the response to him in some cases has mimicked the effect that cult leaders have, which is, is why I'm interested in it. Okay, let me go to a much more pedestrian logistical aspect of this, which is that like any filmmaker, your challenges are how do we, how do we get people to see this movie? To some extent, you can do it electronically uh, through YouTube or Vimeo or whatnot. But you also have to just go make phone calls and get theaters to show your film. One piece of good news that I learned is that you're showing this at the Salt Spring Film Festival here in Canada. And for those who are listening outside Canada, Salt Spring is, it's just this incredibly left-wing, progressive, crunchy granola place. And they're showing your film, which is fantastic and good for them. If you're listening, Salt Spring Film Festival that's awesome. Yet at the same time, there's this downtown theater in Toronto, not far from where I live, called the Carlton, sort of like a quasi art house cinema. And they were supposed to show your movie and they canceled it. And tell me why they canceled it. So what happened at the Carlton Cinema is that uh, there was one or more staff that complained. We don't know exactly what they said, but they complained about the film and protested to the boss. And then the boss decided to take back their agreement about screening the film for a week. So that was pretty disappointing. So that's what happened there uh, with the Salt Spring Film Festival on Salt Spring Island, which we are doing February 29th, uh, leap year. Uh, every, once every four years, this will happen, apparently. I had a friend who lives on the island who introduced me to the curator and then maybe because, I, I don't know, I, when, when we meet them, we'll ask. They, they went for it, they saw the film. Oh, I guess maybe that's the difference. Uh, the people at the Carlton never saw the film. Salt Spring, the curator, saw the film. So that's so sad that based on, on perhaps one or two staff complaints at the Carlton, based on a film they never saw, it's kind of a loose comparison, but this is sort of like this... This mindset that your family fled in Iran, this, this really doctrinaire, us versus them mentality, where you're just censoring something because it's from a forbidden... I think, I think from a biological, psychological reaction, I think it's very similar. It's a fundamentalist idea. Yeah. That, that's what, this will contaminate us spiritually in some way. Yeah. Purity, yeah, yeah. It will enter our chamber of cinema and, and contaminate us and make us feel unsafe. Here's another thing that happened at a cinema in Leslieville, which is on the other side of Toronto. Pretty, pretty yuppie as well. 
So this one's called Gerard Theater or Cine- Gerard Theater. And uh, through a guy that did a podcast of Jordan way back in the day, his friend is one of the people that runs the place. They wanted to screen the film as a way to kind of challenge Jordan's ideas. And then they wanted to have a conversation afterwards with us, the filmmakers, some trans activists. Uh, and then we said, okay, that sounds like a really good idea. Let's do it. But we said... We don't want to be put in a position where we are defending Jordan and every single step. We're the filmmakers, so why don't we do this? Filmmakers here, trans activists or social justice activists or whoever they be willing to do this, and then on the other side will be have some Jordan Peterson fans. And then we got a message on Facebook that said they decided not to do it. Because they felt to have the Peterson fans in the same spot as the trans activists would be unsafe for the trans activists. And then I thought, wow. So this, is, this, was, this was something that they initiated themselves, that they, they wanted to do. On the, this was a condition that they wanted to have to screen the film. And just because we're going to have fans there. So what's so annoying about that is that it's just a complete ignorance of who these people are. And we should also say, when we say trans activists, we're talking here about a minority within the trans activist community that really uh, yeah. is, is doctrinaire. Yeah. We've interviewed trans people on this podcast, and many of them, they might not be Jordan Peterson fans, but they'd, they'd be happy to go see an event like this. And yeah. this is a minority within the trans activist community that, that truly is not interested in discussion. These are the more radical ones. These are the ones that have the, uh, you know, the hammer and sickle. You need something to fight against to give your life meaning, right? So, so this is really bad for trans people because what it, what it does is that if you're walking down the street and if you think literally a monster with fangs the size of your head is, is living on that street in the annex and every time he talks, like swastikas like ninja stars fly out of his mouth have you gotten feedback from pro peterson absolutists who have said your film does not depict peterson in a fair way and you interviewed all these critics yeah so i'm glad you asked about that i almost forgot about that so there was one turning point uh turning point usa which is a right-wing pro-trump group we sent the film to them and the guy said, oh, you know, we'd be interested to maybe see if we could use some of your clips of the film to help us out with the election. I freaked out when I heard that, by the way. There's no way my film is going to be used as any kind of propaganda tool. And then, and then after we sent the film to them, we didn't hear from them again. And that's a good thing because they're like, okay, well, this is a film that we can use as a tool. You know, our film is not meant to be some sort of hammer to smash anything with. So a lot of these Trump people, they, they feel unsafe because there's a trans person in the film. 100%. And here's another thing that happened. When the screening, when we did our premiere at uh, in Cineplex in September, Will uh, was there. Somebody asked, because he's the guy that knows Jordan for many, many years and go- good friends, family friend. He says, oh, when is Jordan going to come back? Or w- w- what do you think is going to happen? And Will says, you know... He says something to the effect of, I, I, I just wish Jordan could have his normal life back. I wish that he would come back and maybe go back to UFT and teach. And, you know, and, th- and then somebody afterwards through, we overheard saying that, oh, I can't believe that, that guy, Will guy, he was so self-centered. We, we need Jordan to fight and we need Jordan to go for it. And it's like, do you project much? It's like, let, let, the guy, <laughs> let the guy have his own. He needs to have his own thing. He's not your savior. 
there, some of their arguments aren't that great. They haven't studied that much. They, they're talking about things and they think they can get a degree in psychology on YouTube. Maybe they lost an argument to a feminist that weirded them out and they think about it every day. And I like, here's what I would have said. So they need Jordan to go and re, they need to watch Jordan rail Kathy Newman over and over again just to be like, well, I wasn't wrong. How can I be wrong? Who was Kathy Newman? Kathy Newman was that Channel 4 interview with the purple background, 10 million views on YouTube. She acted like a fool. I don't want to be one of these guys who says like, so-and-so destroyed. He destroyed her. She deserved it. She didn't do her homework. So there are those people on the right that don't have their, their arguments straight and they are looking for a soundbite to help them win arguments in a debate on an elevator or something and they need Jordan to do it for them. So there are those annoying people. There are more religious people that weren't huge fans of the film. I know because I was trying to sell the film to do a screenings in some churches and they had said, a few of these people said that, uh, oh, where's the debate with Sam Harris and... and and yeah, they, they, they didn't really like the fact that the trans people were in it. They were saying that it has nothing to do with the story. You're missing the whole arc about why this guy has changed, uh, you know, the Western canon for the better, bringing it back to its Christian roots. There is there is there are those people. Even one guy was so radical that he he was saying, why are we hearing from Jordan's wife? I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in the divine and all these things. And I'm like, okay, well, we have nothing to offer your friend, you know? What uh, struck me as interesting there is like there's in a way a similarity between the the people on the kind of right and the left that rejected it. I think part of it has to do with viewing Jordan as a human. Like part of what is rejected on the more extreme left of the people that don't like this film is to humanize Jordan means to a degree to cross that line that ideological line that's drawn of well you know we're it's unethical to make a film like this to show a film like this because we're drawing a line at what jordan has done but if you're seeing him as a human being things just become so much more complex let me ask you a question about the cbc cbc central broadcasting corporation here in canada it's our national broadcaster highly subsidized i bash around the cbc all the time on social media because it's quite woke however Credit to the CBC, or at least a branch of the CBC, the CBC supported this movie. Uh, tell me how that happened. So we had been working on this film for probably two and a half years before um, we had funding, and that includes the time when the film was focusing on Jordan and uh, his relationship with Charles Joseph. And by that point, Jordan was becoming famous and a ton of filmmakers were all approaching him. Everybody wanted to make a film about Jordan Peterson. And uh, some of these filmmakers, Jordan would then connect with us because we had already been working with, uh, you know, working on this film for some time. And we connected with a producer after, you know, a, a few months of meetings and we decided that it would be a good fit to work together um, because to get a broadcaster on board, a lot of the time they'll want a, a seasoned producer who they've worked with before. And of course, this is my first feature film. So we were able to get a meeting at CBC through through that connection and because we had this kind of really unique access to Jordan Peterson, we were able to show them something. I mean, when by the time we had gone into their office, they had received a whole, like, you know, probably a dozen pitches at least on a films about Jordan Peterson. Uh, but they said no to all of them. But then when we showed them this footage of, you know, really being there as all of this was unfolding, they said that a lot of the people there are clearly not fans of Jordan Peterson. And I'm not going to speak for, you know, generalizing for everybody at C. 
CBC, but of course, you know, it is a very progressive and politically correct organization, but they saw unique potential in the filmmaking uh, of this film and in the access that we had. You had proof of good faith that others couldn't because you had been pursuing him even before the whole pronoun controversy erupted in, I think it was 2016. So this showed a sort of sincere interest in the subject. Right. This this wasn't, as Mel likes to say, this wasn't the ambulance we were chasing. If we weren't already there at the time, I probably would not have pursued the story about, you know, when it first erupted, it was about legislation and trans pronouns versus free speech. Here's the thing about the movie, though. I get the sense you don't actually care that much about the pronoun thing. I got the sense, I mean, obviously you care, it's an interesting issue, but you you used it as a window into who Jordan is. I got the sense that that was more interesting to you than the whole pronoun thing. Right? Yes, I would say. And the, the other layer of that, it was also a window into, for me, into the culture war, into the this, you know, huge polarization and politicization of issues that we're not able to have constructive conversations about right now. I saw Jordan Peterson speak in an event a year ago where he disclosed something about himself that I had no idea, that he, at one point in his life, was a psychological consultant to a law firm and lawyers would come and, and consult with him about the stresses they were undergoing in their professional lives. And he spoke very movingly and very insightfully about the special problems that female lawyers were facing at that firm and how the brand of feminism that they had internalized, and don't worry, I'm not going to go on a monologue about feminism, had, had convinced them that they had to make trade-offs in their lives that duplicated the trade-offs that they saw successful male partners had made. And he spoke at some length about this. It struck me that he had this very intense and genuine curiosity about men and women and, and the stresses women are undergoing. And he was very far afield from the stereotype that he's like this YouTube bro who's just catering to a white male audience was it weird being a woman directing a movie about somebody who, at least in the eyes of critics, is a quasi-misogynist or on the wrong side of the male-female culture wars? Because I was working on this and knew about Jordan and his work, and I knew him as a person before those articles came out and before that perception came out, I would say that didn't... I mean, it became weird only to the extent that of what people's perceptions were, because you would have, you know, depending on the article that came out that week, uh, um, you would have this very divergent uh, perception of, of who Jordan was. But, you know, when I came into this, I knew Jordan as a professor who had these ideas and he teaching in the psychology department, like it, it's often majority females in classrooms. So that's how I came into this. But then it was only later, you know, he would be filling these stadiums that started to have majority men and these articles would come out and the uh, custodian of the patriarchy article came out in the New York Times, which I was so shocked when I saw that article. Custodian of the patriarchy? Oh, you never saw it? Is that a, for, like, is that a formal position? Does he get a robe and a mace or something? We actually met the writer, the journalist who wrote that article. I think she spent a couple of days with Jordan and she was, we met her backstage at one of Jordan's shows uh, in Toronto. And it was so strange because when we met her, she remarked on how she was, you know, jealous that we got to work on this film for three years and she only had two days and she came off as kind of almost like a, like a fan, really. Um, so I was so shocked that when this article came out, 
not not just that it was negative okay you know whatever that's fine but it was literally just like monotone like every single thing even even the fact that jordan wasn't wearing socks when he was on skype was part of the you know his evil patriarchal let me ask you about that has anyone told him that like when you're wearing a jacket your shirt should have a collar you haven't even seen his portuguese cape before I became an engineer, which was before I became a lawyer, which is before I became a journalist, I delivered pizzas for a living. And at one point, I worked at Domino's Pizza, and my bosses uh, were married. And to save money, they were the managers of the restaurant, and they just worked together. And um, they kind of went home together, and then they came to work together. And they were sort of at each other's throats, because that's a lot of time to spend together. Like, the only time they were apart from each other was when one was in the bathroom. How did that work out as a professional working relationship? Is that something you suggest to others? It's funny. We got married through the process of making this film. Yeah, people say, you know, isn't it hard? I don't think we relate at all. It's been pretty good. Uh, we're What I recommend it to other people uh, depends on the relationship, you know, because some people, I think most people, they don't, they, it doesn't work out well for them. And I think it has to do with how, how much you like their job. I bet you those pizza owners... Maybe they didn't love pizzas as much as we love film. Are you two making another film together? Yeah, yeah. So the next film, we have so many, but one of them that I'll plug here, because we'll need help funding it, is Mechala, which means to dream. And uh, so that's basically the story about Charles Joseph and Jordan. So I want to highlight one scene. So Jordan and Charles are driving to Ottawa for a Truth and Reconciliation conference. This was like 2015. Patricia's in the back seat. They're both mic'd up and they're just talking. And Jordan, okay, so to give some background, Charles Joseph was molested by priests when he was in residential school. Like many Commonwealth countries, Canada has a dark history with residential schools. Kids, they were taken from their parents. Some of them had a very bad experience and they were... Uh, Charles, for example, was was molested. So Jordan is asking him in the car, what was the hardest part? And then Charles says, it was the smell. It was the smell of white people. He would be taken to a Bible study class and he would go into this dark room, but there wasn't the Bible in it. He would go and he would be molested by this priest. He would close his eyes and his other senses would heighten. And he, would, he could never forget the smell of this one priest. And it reminded him of the way white people smell. It was just a smell that was different from his type of people. And, you know, this was very, this is such a powerful moment because Jordan is Charles's first white friend. So it's really this story about fundamentally a friendship, about these two very different people, Jordan coming out of Harvard, white guy from the country, Charles, illiterate, homeless for a time, awful experience with Christianity. Jordan's very inspired by Christianity. So there's a lot to play with. It's a very Canadian story. Oh, yeah, and another scene in the potlatch ceremony in northern Vancouver Island, Jordan Peterson is dancing around a bonfire in this longhouse, which is this big structure with sand across the floor and these guys in wooden masks, and he's being adopted into, into their family. Um, so he's, as he's dancing around this bonfire, we have this amazing footage. Is the world ready to see Jordan Peterson dance? <laughs> Patricia Marcocha and Maz Goddery of Holding Space Films, thank you so much for being on the Quillette Podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks, John. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? 
Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.